Well, good morning. It is so good to see everyone this morning. So I woke up on, last week I said I was going to cook for Thanksgiving. And I woke up on Thanksgiving morning with this terrible cough in my chest, and it was just, it was terrible. So I had to call Julianne and say, hey, Julianne, I can't cook the food today. Can you come over? So she came over and cooked everything. That was awesome. And then I got a COVID test to make sure it was safe for me to come here today. I, some of you guys are like, oh, no, he was sick. Um, so anyway, so I'm, I'm cleared to be here. But anyway, I, I hope that you all had just a wonderful Thanksgiving. And I know that this year was very challenging. I, I spoke to some people who actually spent Thanksgiving alone because they were being careful. And that's one of the reasons that we're doing that brunch on the 13th of December is because we want to make sure we're going to do it safe. We're going to do it outside. But we want to make sure that over this Christmas and Thanksgiving season that there's nobody who's alone, that, that people are able to connect and be, with their, and be with other people. And so that's the reason that we're doing it. And so I would just encourage you, if you can, come be a part and be an encouragement to others and be encouraged. So this is a, an incredibly important season. And I think especially this year, I just think about how, generally speaking, how just kind of things have been very heavy for a lot of people and very challenging. I even thought about, you know, I get a simple cold. It's no big deal. But just all the pressure that I started feeling like, oh, no, what's going to happen on for Sunday? Am I going to be over this? Uh, I'm thinking, man, I got to call Craig and tell him he's going to have to preach. And, you know, just all those things and just all these uh, seemingly minor things that become very significant. And that's the way it's been for many people over this season. I know there's a lot of people really struggling with just even the, cl- the, the shutdown, how that impacts their jobs. And just it, it, what an incredible opportunity it is for us as believers who have an eternal hope, who have a perspective. We're able to take a step back and look at life for what it is. And so I just want to encourage you. This is a great season for us to genuinely love the people that God has put around us, to be an encouragement. And one of the things I think that is so critical, in order for us to encourage other people, we actually have to have a right perspective ourselves. Because if we're caught up in everything, and if we're not looking at life the way God would want us to look at it, we can't be there for other people the way that God wants us to be. And this morning's passage is so encouraging. It's, it's salvation, camels, and needles. That's our title this morning, salvation, camels, and needles. And uh, we're going to see a couple very popular pa- um, phrases in Scripture. Um, you know, fitting a camel through the eye of a needle. How many of you have heard that before? That comes from this passage. Um, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor. That's in this passage. Uh, You've heard, with God, all things are possible. That's a wonderful sporting verse, but we're going to find out here that it has to do with salvation, not winning a sporting game. And so this morning, basically, um, if we think about things, you know, salvation, having a genuine relationship with the Lord is actually something that is most important for us. And throughout the holiday season, it's actually what we're about We want to love people. We want to encourage them. We want to be a help to them in what they're going through today. But as we take a step back, what we are most concerned about for our kids, for our friends, and for the people that God allows us to cross paths with is their eternal destiny. And we have to have a good perspective on what exactly does it mean to have a relationship with Christ. 
so that we know how to talk to people, so that we know how to pray for people. And this passage really just brings that into view. And so the four things that we're going to look at this morning is first, that salvation is something that is available to children. Now, when you think about the fact that salvation is available to children, that means something significant about what it means to, to understand and accept the gospel. It's not something super complicated. You don't have to go to seminary for it. Kids can genuinely know Jesus. But we're going to find out that, secondly, that salvation is actually conditioned on specific knowledge and on a personal commitment of faith. So salvation is simple. It's for kids, but it's not this fuzzy, random thing. I I was speaking to somebody um, just this week who was just saying, oh, yeah, no, this this person, they they worship this other God, but I just know that God's going to do what's right. Salvation is very specific. And and it requires a personal commitment. It is for kids, but it's not just randomly anything and for everyone. The third thing is that salvation, we're going to find out, flows from a work of God in the heart. And that is an amazing thing because it takes all the pressure off of us. We have kids, we have friends, we have family members that don't know the Lord. and, And they are on our hearts and we care about them and we're praying for them. But there's just such a freedom to know that we don't control other people. We don't force other people. Salvation is a work that God does in their heart. And finally, uh, the fourth thing that we'll see this morning is that salvation is an incredible blessing. It is a blessing in this life. It is a gift in this life. And it is a gift for all eternity. So let's look at Uh, Matthew chapter 19, if you have your Bibles, go to Matthew chapter 19, verse 30. And just in the context, we've just been talking about marriage and divorce and and just how God has designed this incredible blessing of marriage and that he defines it and and all those things and just the commitment that's a part of that. And, And Jesus goes straight from that significant issue to salvation. It's one of the one of the amazing things that Jesus has an ability to do and that you see throughout his ministry. And by the way, that's something that we need to to pay attention to. Jesus cares about the issues of life. He has discussions about the issues of life. But he always takes those issues. Those are never the ultimate end. He always takes those issues and brings them back to what it means to know God. The Pharisees, they're divisive. They're prideful. They're pursuing power. They want personal gratification. They're argumentative and earthly-minded. Jesus, on the other hand, is is eternally-minded, and he's always focusing on the gospel. And that's Jesus' priorities should be ours. So let's look at Matthew chapter 19, verse 13, and let's just look at the fact that salvation is available to children. And we're going to just think through the attitude that God wants us to have for kids. And I hope that this passage is lived out in our church. As we see kids, as we think about kids, as we look around at parents who have kids, that what is in this passage really expresses itself in us and in our attitude. Let's look at this, Matthew chapter 19, verse 13. Then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them, 
and pray. And the disciples rebuked the people. But Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and he went away. Now when you think about this, people were bringing children to Jesus that he would lay his hands on them and that he would pray for them. Now, a lot of times when Jesus was laying his hands on people, it was because they were sick. Maybe there were some, ki- some kids who had some ailments, some struggles. But also, sometimes laying hands on people was just to bless them. And, and here you have these parents. They love their kids. They're bringing their kids to Jesus. And they're just saying, will you lay your hands on my kids? And will you pray for my kids? And one of the things that we see here is that the disciples are rebuking these parents and rebuking the kids and telling them, get out of here. Um, I just want to ask you, do you ever see that kind of an attitude in churches? Do you ever see it in different areas where it's like kids are viewed as a bother, they're a pain. A lot of times they make noise. I I think about the the times that one time I was standing in the back of a church, not this one, but there was a visitor. They showed up for the first time, and they brought their kids, and they sat down, and so they had the squirrely kid that was kind of all over the place. It was making noise during the service. And I I remember there were like two or three people sitting a a few rows ahead that turned around and just glared at them. Like, get your kids out of here. Your kids are making noise. They're disturbing the service. And I was just standing in the back thinking, that is such the opposite of what should be happening in church. But you know what? That is how the disciples treated kids. And so they're rebuking people, and this is what it says in Mark chapter 10. It's a parallel passage, but Mark adds this. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant. When Jesus saw how his disciples were treating kids, it made him angry. Uh, Jesus was looking at these kids, and he said to them, Let the children come to, to me, and do not hinder them. This is Mark 10, 14. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. And then he adds something, uh, Mark records something that Matthew didn't record. It says, for truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And so when you think about salvation, first of all, Jesus loves kids. And I just want to encourage us as a, as a, as a church family that, that we should think about God's value of children And when we see kids in our church, if they're running around, if they're making a mess, if they're knocking things over, um, we should be people that love kids more than stuff. And we should welcome them. We should love them. We should be thinking about the eternal significance of our attitude toward kids. Think about little kids running around and kind of the impression that they can have of church. If every time they're running around or doing things, stop running, don't make noise, go sit over there, don't do this. Or just kids that are just treated unkindly. And how, how that long-term can impact their spiritual well-being. Rather than kids who grow up and they just remember, church was a fun place. Church was a place I loved to be. Church was a place where everybody was nice to me. And as a church, um, there are a lot of things that we want to do in kids' lives to help them come to know the Lord. But the very first step, is that we're gracious, that we're caring, that we're considerate, that we're welcoming. And of course, it's not 
just that we're nice. And the second thing is we're going to find out this morning that there's a very specific knowledge that, that a kid, that anybody needs to have in order to become a Christian. And so we want to do that too. But the starting place is that we love kids in this church. And, and Jesus loved kids. And, and it says that unless you receive the kingdom of God like a child, you will not enter it. And so we need to think through what that means. When you give kids specific information and they come to genuine faith in Christ, it's simple, it's easy, it's an expression of faith. And so there's a lot of people that they just, you know, they overcomplicate the gospel. And so for you and I to remember that salvation is for kids. It's for anybody. And that's, it's really important as you think about the way that Matthew presents this. Because he's going to talk about salvation in a way that in some ways seems overwhelming. And so, so the foundation for what he's about to say is he starts by emphasizing that salvation is for children. And so one of the things for us to keep in mind is that when we see parents with kids, we should pray for those parents. Whether you know them, whether you know their names, when you see parents walking into church, you should be praying for them. When you see little kids running around, when you walk down the hallway and you glance into the nursery or into the Sunday school classes and you see kids, you should look those kids in the eye. You should welcome them, but you should pray for their salvation. Man, kids are growing up in a tough world. Parents have a tough job. And as a church, we are there to encourage and to support. And, and we want to make sure that it's not just parents that kids in this church hear the gospel from. It's one of the incredible blessings of being a Sunday school teacher is to sit and to talk to somebody else's kid and to pray for that kid and to share the gospel with them. Children's ministry is an incredibly important ministry in the church. So let's look at number two, and we're going to transition here to an adult. And we're going to see that salvation is conditioned on specific knowledge and a personal commitment of faith. Salvation is not a general thing. Everybody is not saved. Only people who know the truth about Jesus and who accept that are saved. Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 10, um, or Romans chapter 10, that whole passage is just Jesus talking about how people need to hear the gospel. If there's a person in another part of the world and they've never heard the gospel, they cannot come to know Christ. Nobody is saved apart from the gospel of Christ. Kids are not just saved because they're kids. They have to know the gospel, and it's the same with adults as it is with kids. So let's read this story about Jesus interacting with a man. Matthew 19, 16. And behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Thought about that? What good deed must I do? So this man is confused about the nature of salvation, and we're going to see Jesus walk him through this, and we're going to see how Jesus helps him. And, and then Jesus is going to go on in verse 17, and he says, You ask me about what is good. Now, one of the things that we find out as we read these other passages is that when this man came to Jesus, 
he actually addressed Jesus as good teacher. And, and wrapped up in that conversation in Matthew that's kind of summarized, he says, what, he says, good teacher, what must I do to in- inherit eternal life? And Jesus says to him, why do you call me good? Because only God is good. And so in this interaction, the very first thing that happens is Jesus um, focuses this man's attention on who am I. The first part of salvation is people have to understand who Jesus is. And then he's going to go on and he's going to address his behavior, what he's doing. Let's just read the rest of this. Why do you, there's only one who is good. Why do you ask me about what is good? Verse 17, there's only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. And this man says to Jesus, verse 18, which ones? And Jesus is going to list a selection of the Ten Commandments. This is what he says. And Jesus said to him, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now what's interesting As Jesus uh, lists off some of these commandments, he leaves out the commandment of coveting, of desiring things. That's just an interesting observation here. And the young man says to him, all these things I have kept, what do I still lack? And Jesus says to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. And uh, then look at verse 22. This man has a personal response. And when the young man heard this, he went away sorrow, sorrowful, for he had great possessions. One of the other passages says he was exceedingly wealthy. So this man shows up before Jesus. He, he wants eternal life. He's talking about eternal life. And Jesus lays something out for him, and his response is to say, oh, well, I can't do that. And he goes away sad. Kind of interesting. One of the things in this passage is that you don't notice Jesus saying, oh, wait, wait, come back. Let me change some of this. Let me modify it. Maybe the commitment I asked for was too high. Let me adjust that down. Jesus doesn't do that. He lays it out, and the man goes away sad. So here's a, a few things about this individual. First of all, this, this man seems to be sincere. This is a genuine question. You know, the Pharisees are always trying to t- trick Jesus. But here's a man who's coming with a sincere question to Jesus. He has this burden on his heart. He's got this conviction, and he wants salvation, and he just doesn't feel like he has it. Now, what's interesting is that he's rich, he's young, and he's a ruler. And so if he's a ruler... Most likely, he is a ruler in the synagogue, or maybe he's even a part of the Sanhedrin. But this man is a religious leader, and he has this sense in his life that I've got religion, I've learned all these things, but I just don't feel like I'm okay with God. And and Matthew is going to emphasize this individual's focus on his works, but as I spoke about before, Mark and Luke emphasize his understanding of the person of Jesus. Now, 
I just want to take a, a, a moment here to pause. This is a religious man. And one of the things that I want to remind us of is that over this holiday season, over Thanksgiving, over Christmas, we're going to be running into many people. And maybe we're going to run into a few less people this year than we did last year. But still, I want you to know that as you cross paths with people, no conversation is an accident. One of the things that you need to know is that God is specifically putting you in conversations. He is putting you in places. And, and this year may be unique. Sometimes there are so many people. Things are so confusing and there's so much going on. And this year things may be simplified. Things may be a little more intense. People's hearts may be a little bit more ready than in the past just with all the stuff that's going on. And I just want you to know that religion is not enough. And we need to be able to think specifically about the gospel. I think one of the harmful things in Christianity is when we just think, oh, yeah, they're religious. They said God. They must be a Christian. Uh, I used to think about that with my father. who had, uh, he, he had his own form of religion. He decided that he was a good person. And that one day he would stand before God and God would judge him based on what he did. And I just remember asking my dad, and I, I would say, so dad, do you think you're, you're good enough to go to heaven? And he would say, yeah, I think I'm a good person. And I would say, well, what if when you get to heaven you find out that you weren't good enough? And, and my dad would just say to me, well, hey, there's nothing I can do about that. Whatever God's going to do is what he's going to do. And if I'm not good enough, then I just won't have been good enough. It's like my dad was just satisfied with that. My dad was definitely not a Christian um, as, I, as a kid growing up. He did not believe that Jesus is God. He did not believe that the Bible was the word of God. But everywhere my dad went, he talked about God. He believed that there was a God. He believed that the world was created by God. And so people who would have conversations with him just assume he's a Christian. He talks about God. And, and I used to just be praying that I was trying to share the gospel with my dad. I really wanted to see him come to know the Lord. And I was hoping that people around him would, would be intuitive enough to realize that while my dad believed in God and while he was religious, did not know the gospel. And my encouragement to you is that you think about what the gospel is as you run across people and that you are prepared to share the gospel with them, to encourage them, to ask questions that will be spiritually helpful. So to be a Christian, you have to have faith in the person of Christ. While salvation is for children, it is specific. It is not intangible. Mark chapter 10, verse 17, when he's recording this interaction, uh, it says, and he, as he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus doesn't even answer his question initially. He starts by saying, wait a second, what do you believe about me? And Jesus says this, why do you call me good? No one is good except God. Now, Jesus is not saying that he's not God. He's just saying, you're calling me good. Are you saying that because you recognize who I am? The Bible tells us in Colossians chapter 2, 9, that in him, talking about in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Jesus is completely God, and he was a man. 
So the whole fullness of deity dwelt in Jesus. And when you talk about salvation, it's unique that Jesus was the God-man. Uh, 1 Timothy 2.5 says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ. There are many people who trust Jesus and other things. They lump all kinds of religious things together. But you've got to know that Jesus is God, that he was a man, and that he is the only one in whom there is hope. There has to be faith in Jesus. Um, in many cases, I, I've seen children's ministries, and they just tell kids, hey, Jesus likes you. You're a good person. And did you know that that, that is not enough for a kid to be saved? You can't just tell kids, hey, God doesn't make junk. As we minister to children and as we minister to people in general, it is important that people know who Jesus is. That is essential to the gospel. The second thing, let's look at Matthew chapter 19, verse 16, is there has to be faith in Jesus, but there has to be faith in the work of Jesus. And behold, a man came up to him saying, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And uh, so he's, so this man is, is basically saying, how do I save myself? What do I need to do to be saved? It is amazing how often when you're in a conversation with somebody, if you just ask the simple question, um, if you were to stand before God and say, why should I let you into heaven, um, what would you say? How often a person will respond by saying, I'm a good person. Uh, my dad always felt like, I'm a good person because I do what I believe is right. I obey my conscience. And it was kind of interesting what my dad's conscience was. Uh, he felt like uh, doing, you know, anyway, I, I won't even get into those details. But I could just say, we can have a system where we feel justified about the things that we do. I, I was thinking about uh, the story in Genesis where, um, these brothers in the Old Testament, this group of people raped their sister. And after raping their sister, this guy says, hey, I want to marry her. And these two brothers, um, they just decide, oh, okay, so they tell them, well, you guys got to be circumcised because we're Jews. And so these guys get circumcised. And your parents, if you're young, can explain to you what that is. But, but these guys are all in pain. And these two brothers then grab swords. They run through the town and they kill every single one of them. And they kill them for what they did to their sister, and they feel good about it. One of my kids read that story and said, that's my favorite story in the Bible. And, and I remember reading that story and just thinking to myself, well, that sounds about right. You know, if I was there, I would probably have done the same thing. Um, but what's interesting is just this morning I was reading God's evaluation of that, and he actually pronounces judgment on them. It is amazing the ability that we have to convince ourselves that we're good people, to see that the things that we do are justified. And so this man is coming to Jesus, and he's just saying, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says to him, uh, keep the commandments. So what's Jesus doing here? Is he saying, oh, keep the commandments. Salvation is by reading and understanding the Old Testament and doing everything that it says. That's how you achieve salvation. That is not Jesus' point. Jesus is helping him to realize that he is unable, that he cannot achieve his own salvation. Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, 
gives us God's standard. It says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Romans chapter 3, verse 10 says, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who seeks for God. None, all have turned aside. Keep the commandments. His response should have been, yeah, I've tried that, and it didn't work. Instead, he says, oh, no, I've kept the commandments. Romans 7, 7 says, yet if I had not, if it had not, this is the Apostle Paul talking about the law. If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. The blessing of the law is it explains all the things that we can know, okay, this is what God wants, and we can measure ourselves against it. You know, the Bible says, don't take revenge. Uh, those brothers in the Old Testament, revenge. They would have realized, oh, that was wrong for me to do that. The whole point of the law is to lay out God's standard so that we realize we are not good. Titus chapter 3, verse 4 says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. And so works don't save us. And so Jesus is going to actually key into two things in this man's life. He's going to ask him for a response. Now, one of the things about this man is he says in verse 20, the young man said to him, all these things I have kept, what do I still lack? It's interesting, in this man's mind, kept the, the commandments. He felt like a good person, like he'd obeyed. But guess what? The Holy Spirit was working on his heart. He felt convicted. He knew, okay, so I'm, I'm not okay. I'm still not okay with God. And so he's gone to Jesus, and he's like, okay, I need some help. What do I need to do to be saved? And Jesus says, obey. And he says, okay, I've done that. But I, I still, I can tell I'm still not right. What else do I have to do? And Jesus zooms in, and he shows this man what is really going on in his heart. He just says this. Jesus says to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. And when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had a great many possessions. You know, here's the interesting thing about Jesus looking at this man. You know, uh, Mark chapter 10, verse 21 tells us that Jesus doesn't look at him and he doesn't go, oh, yeah, you're a prideful person. You think you're obeying the commandments. You're lying. You know, Jesus does not have a bad attitude toward this person. It says in Mark chapter 10, verse 21, Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said, you lack one thing. Go sell all you have and give it to the poor. Jesus is soft-hearted toward this person. That God is tugging on his heart. God's working on his heart. Jesus is soft-hearted, and he calls him. And he says, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Now, um, do you guys remember some of the things that Jesus has said about salvation? Jesus is basically saying, do you see me for who I am? Do you see your need? for what your need is. Because if you recognize who you are and you recognize who God is and what Jesus offers, you would do anything for salvation. This is what Matthew 10:37 says. 
It says, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Remember all the parables that Jesus tells about uh, the kingdom of God where he says the kingdom of God is like a field. It's got this incredible treasure in it. And somebody finds it and they go sell everything they have and they go buy this field. And they're happy to trade everything they have because what Jesus offers, salvation, a relationship with Christ, peace with God, is more valuable than anything else. And when you see that for what it is, when God opens up your heart and you see it, you will trade anything for it. And Jesus just says in uh, this passage we just read in Matthew 13, anything that you value more than you value me just demonstrates that your heart is spiritually blind. Because the moment that God opens up your heart, the, the spiritual eyes of your heart, you will see what is truly valuable and trade anything for it. So um, salvation is, is uh, a specific um, thing. It is conditioned on it, and it requires a, a personal response. And this man goes away sorrowful. Now here's the great thing. Just because that man went away sorrowful in this conversation doesn't mean that God did not continue to work on his heart there are so many times that we accurately and truly present the gospel to a person and they walk away and they reject it and they say, no, I don't want that. But the Holy Spirit continues to work in their heart. We've seen plenty of that. And this man goes away sorrowful. And I just think about the fact that Jesus loved this man. And I wonder what God did. I wonder what Jesus did in his life in the years to come. Because Jesus cared about him. And here's what we're going to see is that salvation... It flows from a work of God in the heart. It is so important for us to recognize that God is the one who opens hearts. Now, Jesus is going to now explain the situation to his disciples. And um, this is what he says in verse 23. Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you that it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of, of God. Now, there are all kinds of things that are, that, that I don't know if you've ever heard any of them. Like, think about that, a camel through the eye of a needle. Grab a sewing needle and, and come on, come on, camel here, go get through this. Could that happen? Like, is that possible? I've heard this described um, in many different ways. One is that there was a gate called the eye of a needle, and that for a camel to get through it, they had to unload the baggage, and the camel had to crouch down. Like, I've heard all kinds of stories about that. Can I just tell you, none of those stories are true. None of those things happened in the day of Jesus. Those are all, like, things that were imagined that came up in church history much later when people are trying to explain this away. This is very, very simple. Can a camel go through the eye of a needle? The answer to that is no, they can't. It doesn't say it's, it's well, if he worked really hard, he could get through. It's, it's, Jesus is saying it's very difficult. In fact, it's impossible. 
Jesus phrases that twice to just magnify the fact that it is impossible for any rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's impossible. And um, how do we know that that's what Jesus said? Well, what did the disciples understand when Jesus said that? Well, let's just read the next verse. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? They understood exactly what Jesus was saying. Jesus is just saying, this is impossible. And the disciples are going, okay, well, wait a second. Then that means nobody can be saved. And then this is what it says in verse 26. But Jesus looked at them and he said, with man, this is impossible. What was Jesus saying about salvation for rich people? It is impossible. Matthew says, Jesus says, with man, it is impossible. Like this is actually not a hard story to figure out. I don't know why people go up with all these other things to come up with gates and all this other stuff. No, this is impossible. Jesus says it right here. But with God, all things are possible. I want to encourage you. If you've been sharing the gospel with people, if you see people that they just seem so far away from the Lord, no matter what happens, there just seems to be this huge gap, and you just think, man, this could never happen. They're never going to come back to the Lord. I want you to know that with God, all things are possible. And that's why we pray, that's why we share the gospel, is because that's what we want for people. You know, um, when you think about riches, it's something that uh, can be a hindrance to salvation. Um, after you've come to Christ, are there ever times that, that you struggle? Are there ever times that when you think about your relationship with the Lord and you think about material things and what God calls you to do, that sometimes you kind of struggle and you, you start to like maybe have an affection for the things of the world or you start to have an affection for people's approval? I was thinking about what a great year this is for you and I to reevaluate our commitment that we made that when we became Christians, to reevaluate that commitment that we made to follow Christ, to be reminded that disaster, difficulty, trauma is not always a bad thing. In many cases, that is what God does to strip away the things that are in the way. Let me read something from Chuck Swindoll. And this is in a book that he wrote in, called Come Before Winter. It says, two extreme tests exist that disturb our balance in life. Each has its own set of problems. On one side is adversity. Solomon realized this when he wrote, if you falter in times of trouble, how small is your strength? Another way to say that is if you fall into pieces in a crisis, there wasn't much of you in the first place. He goes on to say, adversity is a good test of our resilience, our ability to cope, to stand back up, to recover from misfortune. Adversity is a painful pedagogue or it's a painful teacher. On the other side is prosperity. In all honesty, it's a tougher test than adversity. Precious few are those who can live in the lap of luxury who can keep their moral, spiritual, and financial equilibrium while balancing on the elevated tightrope tight of a success. It's ironic 
that most of us can handle a sudden demotion much better than a sizable um, promotion. Why? Well, it's really not too difficult to explain. When adversity strikes, life becomes rather simple. Our need is to survive, to make it through the night. But when prosperity occurs, life gets complicated. Our needs become numerous and often extremely complex. Invariably, our integrity is put to the test, and only about one person in a hundred can dance to the tune of success without paying the piper named compromise. Sometimes struggle and adversity is a spiritual blessing, not just for others, but for us. And and I, I really do pray for God's blessing in all of your lives. I want things to go well for you. I want you to prosper. But ultimately, even in difficulty and trials, God is blessing us. You know, um, when you read the rest of this passage, one of the things that we're going to see here is that salvation comes with present and future rewards. Look at Peter. I love Peter, the way he responds after this. Um, Peter said in reply, see, we have left everything and followed you. What will we have? So it's just amazing. You remember when uh, Jesus told um, Peter that he was going to get crucified? You know, he said, people are going to stretch you out. And Peter's like, oh, wait a second. What, what about John? What's going to happen to him? And Jesus just says, hey, if I want John to live until I come back, what's that to you? You just follow me. And, and here you have Peter. Like, he's watching this happen. He's watching this man with this desire for salvation come to Jesus and say, um, Jesus, I want eternal life. And then he sees Jesus say, well, you'd have to sell everything and give it to the poor. And he watches that man make a calculation. And go, well, I really do want salvation, but actually, I love my stuff more. And he goes away sad, choosing to keep his stuff. And the apostle Peter's like, uh, uh, Jesus, um, um, well, well, what about us? We gave everything up. And can you see that? Have you ever wondered that? Have you ever made the decision that you're going to follow Christ no matter what? But then you see other people who have made a different choice. You see other people who are rich and who are wealthy. Maybe they have everything and you just think, man, maybe they are better off. Maybe, they, maybe that is more valuable. And so Peter's choice, he's kind of questioning it. And he's, he's just saying, Jesus, what about us? Like remember Matthew chapter 4, verse 19, Jesus walks up to the disciples and he says, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. In verse 20, immediately they left their nets and they followed him. See, the disciples had been given the same um, uh, answer that this man was given. Sacrifice everything and follow me. And they said, okay. They were were in the middle of work, and they just got up, and they left their jobs. They started following Jesus. And keep this in mind. Peter was married. He was married, and he had kids, and when Jesus called him, he left everything and followed Jesus. Um, There are many rewards. Look at John 6. See, this is what was at the heart of the disciples. Um, And and he said, uh, this is Jesus talking to his disciples, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and were no longer walking with him. And Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? 
And Simon Peter answered him and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. When you look at this, Jesus responds to Peter. Uh, Peter and the disciples recognize that Jesus was the greatest possible treasure. So after he asks the question, Jesus says, Truly, I say to you that in the new world, in the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. You know, I can't help but think of Matthew 16, 24. There is great reward in this life for those who follow Christ, and mainly eternal life. Matthew 16, 26 says, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world or forfeits his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? My encouragement to you is that salvation is the most significant thing in our life and in the lives of others. And salvation is not just a moment of time. It is something that impacts everything that we do. It impacts the way we live. It impacts the way we see people and the way that we see life. And it impacts our purpose. And no matter what happens in your life, your salvation, your relationship with Christ, his love for you will never change. For other people, their, their all is their stuff. And when something happens that causes them to lose everything they have, they are, they're destroyed. But for us, what we have is Jesus, and Jesus is someone we can never lose. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for giving us your word. And Lord, I pray that you would be our greatest treasure, our greatest possession. And Lord, that that would give us a confidence, a joy, a happiness, an ability to endure any difficulty or trial because we know that you love us and you hold us in your hands. And Lord, I pray that you would never allow us to look at people around us who don't have you but who have other things and to envy them, to feel like they're better off. Help us to recognize that our greatest need is you and that everyone's greatest need is you. And Lord, I just ask that there would be many opportunities for us to encourage one another, to love one another, And Lord, for us to point people to you in this season, in your name, amen.